Hi folks, this is Chris. Just a quick content warning. This episode contains violent and disturbing imagery, as well as discussion of suicide. If you or someone you love is having thoughts of suicide, there is help available. Please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, toll-free, at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Free and confidential support is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. You can also visit them online at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Don't wait. Call now. All right, here's the show. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 122. Hello, ladies and gents. Welcome to another episode of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So let's get started, shall we? Today I'm bringing you part two of my story, Troubled Minds. In last week's episode, we met Abby Preston, a young telepath being tormented by visions of violence and death. Abby has checked herself in to St. Teresa's School and Halfway House, a home for troubled young women that's run by the Ecclesiast Church. There, she met Mother Annabelle, the nun in charge of the facility, and Jenna Hartman, one of the residents and Abby's new roommate. Abby learns that Jenna's father was an incubus. The staff at St. Teresa's tried to perform a ritual to purge her daedric essence, but it didn't work, and Jenna became a succubus after she reached puberty, though Mother Anna and the other nuns are not aware of this. Jenna tries to seduce Abby, but Abby warns her not to touch her since physical contact enhances telepathic abilities, and she doesn't want Jenna to face the same terrifying visions that Abby herself is dealing with. Abby and Jenna discuss a recent rash of suicides that's happened at the school. One of the girls was a close friend of Jenna's named Trisha, who slit her wrists in the shower in the middle of the night. Jenna doesn't believe it was really a suicide, because Trish had been stable for eight years. It doesn't make sense that she would suddenly kill herself. Abby promises Jenna that she will try to find out what's going on, and who, or what, is responsible. Troubled Minds A Tale of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Part 2 Abby stood in the spray of the showerhead, one of six such nozzles arrayed around a central pole, and let the water wash over her as she tried to think. Something was wrong here, and it was more than just her own recurrent visions. For all the emotional problems that plagued the girls who came here, the information she had suggested that suicides were rare in the school's history. Three in the space of six months was unheard of. What had happened to drive Trisha, Maya, and Sanji over the edge? She looked around at the rest of the communal shower, at the nine other shower stations like the one she stood under, and the drains spaced evenly across the tile floor. There were a couple of other girls in here, but they were over on the far side of the room, 
half-veiled in mist. Neither of them were paying any attention to Abby. She looked down at the drains, frowning. Six months ago, Trisha had opened her veins over one of them and let the lifeblood spill out of her. From what Abby knew of such things, it would have been a quiet, almost peaceful way to die. But someone who was really at peace wouldn't have done such a thing, which meant there might be something left. Stepping out of the shower spray, Abby paced slowly from one drain to another, her bare feet brushing over the gratings as she passed. At each one she paused, closing her eyes, focusing. She'd gone halfway across the room when she felt a twinge run through her body. There. Getting down on her knees, Abby placed her hand against the grate and closed her eyes, reaching for the strange sensation that tickled at the back of her mind. Stretching out her will, she sent a wave of comfort and reassurance toward the sensation, coaxing whatever it was to come out of hiding and show itself to her. Slowly, the tickling coalesced into the sense of a presence somewhere close to her, like the feeling of someone breathing gently into her ear. Show me, she whispered. Talk to me. She opened her eyes. There, in the pool of water gathering around the drain, she saw a reflection staring back at her that was not her own. A young woman, perhaps sixteen, gazed up at her with soft blue eyes from a pale white face, framed with long, curly blonde hair. She was soaked and naked, like Abby, and her hair clung to her shoulders and the upper curves of her breasts. Her lip was trembling, her expression sad and confused. Trisha, Abby murmured. The shade blinked. Who are you? she asked, in a voice Abby could hear only in her mind. A friend, Abby said. Do you remember what happened to you? The girl frowned, as if deep in thought. I laid down on the floor and went to sleep. It... it was quiet. Why did you go to sleep, Trisha? The image closed her eyes, shook her head slightly. No. Don't make me remember, please. I need you to remember, Trisha, Abby said earnestly. Please help me. Why did you do this? Trisha looked at her. To escape, she said at last. Only way I could get away. What were you trying to escape from, Trisha? The shade's face clouded with fear. Bad dreams, she said. What kind of dreams? No. Don't remember, Trisha said. Couldn't see it. No face, no name. But it was there. Always there. Every night. No way out. She shuddered. Except one. How long did this go on? The image seemed to shrug helplessly. Can't remember. Weeks. Too long. She paused, and her eyes went unfocused, as if looking behind Abby. Her mouth fell open, then closed. It's still here. Can't stay. Have to hide. Trish, wait, please, Abby said. No! Can't stay! The girl shouted. Then, more softly. You should go. Leave. You don't want to be here. You should hide. Trisha, what is... The girl looked up. It's behind you, she said. Then the water rippled, and she was gone. Hey, you all right? 
someone asked. Abby felt a hand on her shoulder. She turned around, looked up. The thing hunkered there, too big for the room, a mountain of twisted flesh and shadow. Saliva dripped from huge jaws and needle teeth as mad yellow eyes shone with glee. It had one huge hand around a naked girl's throat as the other slit her belly open, wrapping her intestines around its knife-like fingers. The girl stared at her with vacant eyes as she held Abby's shoulder in one weakening, outstretched hand. Abby screamed and fell backward, pushing herself away. A girl stood there, body intact, arms still reaching for her, eyes and mouth wide in silent terror. She wavered there a moment, and then her knees gave way, and she fell to the floor, shaking. Oh, gods, I'm sorry, Abby said, wincing. She didn't dare to put a comforting hand anywhere near the girl. The poor thing had already seen too much. What? The girl gasped, then retched, vomit spilling onto the floor. She choked, spat, and heaved for more than a minute before she could speak again. What was that? She said at last. Abby stood up. A bad dream, she said softly. A dream? The other spat, looking up at her with angry eyes. What the fuck is that supposed to mean? Abby looked up at the ceiling. I'm not sure yet, she said, but I'm going to find out. In her dreams that night, Abby walked the halls of the school, searching. It was the same building she'd walked through earlier that evening, and yet it was different. The red wallpaper of the first floor was now something moist and slippery, like the lining of some creature's throat. Doors opened and closed like fleshy sphincters as she passed through them, and everywhere a heavy mist, hot and fetid, hung in the air. Her bare feet squelched against a carpet that looked and felt like an enormous tongue, twitching and lolling beneath her as she walked. She went down to the cathedral and looked around. The mist hung more thickly there, swirling around pews of flesh and arching columns that had become the long, curving bones of a ribcage. The fog stung her eyes and chewed at her skin, as if it were made of acid. Abby lifted her hands to touch her temples, and a third eye opened, glowing brightly in the center of her forehead. It cast a beam of cool blue radiance before her, evaporating the burning mists and painting her surroundings in patterns of light and shadow. Moving with slow, cautious steps, she searched the cathedral, but apart from herself, it was empty. She searched the lobby, the offices, and the storerooms, but all was still and quiet. She found the bedrooms where Mother Anna and the other sisters slept. Each room looked like a bloated, membranous sack, with the women lying asleep on beds that protruded from the walls like cancerous growths. A faint shimmer of light surrounded each of them, but it was dim and feeble, like a bulb receiving too little current. The mist clung close around the sleeping women, sending out probing tendrils that tried and failed to find gaps in the auras that surrounded them. Abby continued walking, up the stairs and onto the second floor. Here the pale yellow walls and floors were rough and hard, and seemed to be made of bones. The students' rooms hung in neat rows, distended sacks, surrounded by bars of long, sharp teeth. 
The energy of strong emotions radiated through the walls of the sacks like warm red light, though the emotions of each girl were different. Anger at being abandoned, fear for the lives of the unborn children some of them carried, hatred for those who had caused them so much pain. Some of the sacks glowed brightly, the emotions raw and throbbing. For others, who had found a measure of peace, the light was soft and steady. Still others seemed almost empty, drained of the capacity to feel anything, and in these the shadows gathered until they seemed almost a living thing, a darkness somehow more real than the light. Far off down the hallway, one sack seemed to be glowing more brightly than all the others, though Abby could only distinguish it as a distant light through the mists that filled the passage. From the same direction she heard a scratching, the sound of claws on bone. Focusing on her third eye, willing it to greater brightness, she strode toward the light and the noise. Something was standing outside the brightly lit sack, its bulk filling the corridor. Hunched shoulders heaved with quickening breaths. Splayed feet shifted back and forth on two short legs. Gangling arms reached up to pry at the toothy bars with long, clawed hands. It peered through the bars with bright, eager yellow eyes, watching the activities within the semi-transparent sack with great interest. Abby hesitated, resolve wrestling with fear. She looked more closely at the brightly glowing sack, stretching out her perceptions toward it, and inside she saw Jenna and a half-dozen other girls, naked bodies writhing together in the tight confines of the room. Bright energy swirled within the sack, selfish lust and nobler affection, mixing together in a whirling cloud of passion, as each heart within sought to escape their pain and loss in the pleasuring touch of the others. Jenna wove and twisted among them, like a serpent among a clutch of eggs, consuming selfish and selfless energies alike as she drew off a little of the life force of each participant, replenishing and sustaining her own. Meanwhile, the beast stood outside and watched the frenzy within, jaws slathering. It squeezed one claw through the bars, barely touching one of the girls, but then it snarled and suddenly drew back again, as if stung. Anger welled up in Abby, and her third eye blazed with light. Hey, she shouted in challenge, you get away from there. At the same time, she unleashed a blast of psychic energy, sending it out like a laser beam to try to disrupt the creature's shadow flesh. The beam hit the beast in the shoulder and dissipated. The creature didn't even flinch. Instead, deliberately, it turned its head, yellow eyes leering at her from a nightmarish face. It laughed, a sibilant, wheezing sound. What's the matter, little one? It hissed. So eager to die. Abby trembled, but she held her ground. She had to do this. No, she said. I'm not going to let you hurt them. No more. She sent out an even stronger mind blast, driven on a lance of anger and desperate fear. It barely left a mark on the creature's scaly hide. Abby froze in shock and terror. That blast would have shattered the minds of most mundanes. Why couldn't she even scratch this thing? The beast laughed again. Not going to let me hurt them? It asked, its tone mocking. You're a foolish little girl. You could not even protect the life inside of you. 
Its eyes flashed, and Abby staggered. Staggered as Victor plunged the knife into her abdomen, crumpling to the floor as the baby screamed in her mind. She tried to fight back, tried to cover herself to protect the child, but her former lover struck her in the head with a vicious blow and then stabbed the knife into her again. The child thrashed and wailed, unable to understand why pain and cold and hardness had invaded her place of safety. And then she shuddered and died, her blood mixing with Abby's own, her tiny, powerful little mind shredding Abby's with the force of its passing. Abby could do nothing, not cry, not even scream, but her pain went out in a wave of psychic energy that would touch everyone within two kilometers. Victor reared back, stunned by the mental blow, then screamed in rage and drove the knife into her once more. She only dimly heard his footsteps as he ran away, and she weakly held her hands to her stomach as she tried to stop the flow of blood. Others were coming now, words of encouragement ringing through her mind, but she couldn't hold on any longer. She felt herself slipping away into the darkness and fell to the floor, weeping, numb, and helpless. The creature towered over her, its eyes narrowed in disgust. You are not yet ripe, little one, it said, but soon your time will come. Tonight I dine elsewhere. It shambled past her, not giving her a second glance. Abby could do nothing. She just clutched her stomach and wept. She awoke in a start, body drenched in a cold sweat, heart pounding. She nearly hit her head on the bunk above her as she sat up. Hey, you all right? She doubled over one hand clutching her chest, the other going reflexively to the scars on her stomach. She focused on taking deep, slow breaths, letting the tension drain out of her. Jenna was kneeling beside her bed a moment later. Hey, Abby, you all right? She asked again, her voice filled with obvious concern. Abby just closed her eyes and shook her head. As the immediate panic faded away, barriers of control crumbled and a torrent of emotion spilled out in its wake. She tipped over on the bed and curled up into a ball, tears coming in heavy, racking sobs as freshly remembered grief consumed her. My baby, she cried. My baby. Hey, 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 Jenna murmured. Abby. Abby felt arms wrapping around her, but she was sunk too deeply in her own misery to think about the implications. She responded instinctively, reaching out for comfort, clutching tightly at the warm, slender body that had drawn near to her own. She felt skin touch skin, heard Jenna gasp, and then her mind was there alongside Abby's, seeing the source of her pain and grief in an instant. Abby felt Jenna's surge of hatred toward Victor for what he had done, her terror at the thing Abby had confronted in her dream, and her deep sorrow and compassion for Abby upon seeing all she had lost. Abby felt Jenna's mind reach out to her own, offering strength and comfort, clumsily, since she had no inherent skill at telepathy, and Abby gratefully accepted. Abby's grief and pain were spread between them both, diluted, as a measure of Jenna's vitality and raw stubbornness flowed into Abby. They began to drift closer, 
long-term memories and essential natures opening up to one another, but Abby exerted her will and drew back before the connection could become too deep. Jenna had no defenses, no training. They would lose themselves in each other entirely, lose the distinction between self and other, unless Abby deliberately took steps to prevent it. A skilled telepath could disentangle herself after such a union, but a mundane would never escape it, never regain her own personality. So she pulled away, throwing up her mental shield, and with another effort of will forced her body to separate from Jenna's, breaking the contact. Jenna sat back on her heels, stunned. Whoa, she breathed. Abby rubbed at her eyes, wiping away sleep sand that had mingled with tears. She managed a little smile. I told you it was dangerous, she said quietly. Jenna looked up at her, and Abby saw tears running down her face as well. Maybe, but... Damn. Abby, I had no idea. What Victor did to you, to your baby? I know, Abby said. I thought I'd worked through it, but... She shook her head. Since I came here, it's like it keeps coming back to me. Like that monster is taunting me with it. What was that thing? Jenna asked. I'm not sure, Abby said. Some kind of ethereal creature. Probably escaped from the dreamlands. I think it feeds on emotions, drains them out of the person. Like me, Jenna whispered. No, not like you, Abby said firmly. You use emotions as a conduit to feed off a person's life source, but you don't actually drain the emotions out of them. I think this thing actually strips away a person's capacity to feel. My guess is that it gets into their heads while they sleep, replays the darkest moments in their lives over and over again as it feeds off the anger and hatred and pain. Each time the person gets a little number, can feel less and less, until there's nothing left in them but despair. I spoke to Trisha in the shower last night. Wait, wait, you spoke to Trisha? Yes. Well, a shade of her, anyway. It's sort of a psychic imprint that people sometimes leave behind when they die, like an echo of themselves. Anyway, she told me that she'd been having bad dreams before she died, and she sent something here in the school, that creature I saw. She couldn't really see it in her dreams, though, so I think the fact that I can may have something to do with my being a telepath. Whatever it is, it looks like it's made a home here, and it's feeding off the pain of the students. Holy shit, Jenna said. But why'd it come here? There's no shortage of pain or suffering on the street. Abby grimaced. Honestly? I'm guessing it was drawn here by your feeding. The sheer amount of energy you've got in motion in this place, with the little sexual revolution you fostered among the students? She shrugged sadly. It's like a big neon sign outside a restaurant, or moths being drawn to a flame. Jenna drew back, horrified. Oh my god, she whispered, putting a hand to her mouth. I never meant to hurt anybody, I didn't- Hey, hey, Abby said, putting her hand on Jenna's shoulder and being careful not to touch skin. Don't blame yourself for this. Like you said, you're just doing what you have to to survive. There's no way you could have known it would attract something like that. The bastard with the claws is the one who killed your friends, not you. Jenna took a deep breath and nodded. I know, she said, as if to convince herself. I know. She paused and frowned, as if a thought had struck her. 
Why do you suppose it couldn't touch us last night? Abby had been thinking about that one, too. Two reasons, I think. You were awake, and the emotions were too intense. It's like fire. The warmth is good, but too close or too hot, and it burns you. Maybe going through your dreams acts like some kind of insulation for it, letting it feed on strong emotions safely. If it is from the dreamlands, its powers would naturally work better on the dream plane. It probably was drawn here by what you were doing, found out it couldn't use that energy, and then turned to feeding on the girls after they fall asleep. I'll take your word for it, Jenna said. This is too weird for me. So where did it go after it left you last night? I'm not sure, Abby said. I... She stopped. A mental image suddenly flooded back to her from the previous evening. Oh, shit, she said, then scrambled out of bed and out the door, Jenna two steps behind her. There was a crowd of people gathered in the common area. Students, sisters, and a few employees Abby hadn't met yet. Many of the girls were sitting on the floor, sobbing, and some of them had thrown up. Abby pushed through the crowd, planting forceful suggestions in people's minds to let her pass, until she stood in front of the window. Mother Anna was leaning against the wall, her expression haunted. "'What's happened?' Abby asked, in a voice that brooked no argument. Mother Anna didn't even seem to notice her impertinent tone. "'Clarice,' she said, the words coming slowly and with obvious difficulty. "'We found an open window up near the roof. She wasn't even supposed to be up there,' she added, almost as an aside. "'We think she—' Oh, Eli. She put a handkerchief to her eyes and fell silent. Abby leaned forward and looked out the window. Clarice's body was impaled on the wrought iron fence, which seemed to have hit her squarely across the abdomen. A pool of blood lay on the grass and pavement beneath her, and her entrails dangled loosely over the fence, spilling from her ruptured body. Abby closed her eyes and turned away from the window. Evidently, Clarice hadn't paid much attention to where she was jumping. Abby couldn't imagine that someone would choose a death like that deliberately. Jenna was beside her a moment later, nearly vomiting when she saw the scene below. Abby felt her press down revulsion with raw, seething anger. I want the bastard who did this, Jenna whispered fiercely in Abby's ear as she took her by the shoulder and led her away from the rest of the crowd. Tell me what I can do to help. Abby shook her head weakly. I don't know. Even I couldn't stop him, and I could see him coming. Hell, he showed me what he was going to do, and I couldn't stop it. We'll find a way, Jenna insisted. Damn it, we've got to. I'm not going to let anyone else get killed because of me. She must have noticed Abby's expression, because she squeezed her shoulder a bit harder and gave her a shake. Hey, come on. We've got all day, right? He can't get us unless we're sleeping. That's true, Abby admitted. The only problem is, I'm not sure we can get to him unless we're sleeping either. And that's the end of part two. Come back next week for part three, when Abby tells Mother Anna about her own troubled past. Cassandra Clare said... We live and breathe words. It was books that made me feel that perhaps I was not completely alone. 
they could be honest with me and I with them. So open your heart, speak your truth, and follow me to our weekly writing report. I wrote 3,277 words this week, over the course of five hours, for an average writing speed of 655 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 110 days without breaking my chain. This week I continued working on Operation Ibex. I didn't make as much progress as I was hoping to, though. I'm still in Chapter 6, and the story is up to a little more than 13,000 words. I also wrote a very special piece of non-fiction. It's the story of how I met my fiancé, Melanie, and it's for our wedding website. If you're curious, you can read it at chrisandmelanie.minted.us. If you've been listening to this show for a long time, you'll know that I use the magic spreadsheet to keep track of my writing progress. This is a shared Google spreadsheet that assigns points based on how many words you write each day, and, more importantly, how many days in a row you can keep your chain going. I recently discovered that the spreadsheet's organizers have added a feature to support writers who are trying to go pro. Writing new words consistently is always important, but when you're trying to bring your writing to market... Sometimes you need to spend time on the other aspects of your business. Editing, layouts, business management, recording audiobooks. All that stuff has to happen, or nobody's going to read your books. When I first started using it, the Magic Spreadsheet didn't have a way to give you credit for this work. So if you dedicated a day to that instead of writing, you would break your chain. But now we have a solution. Some of you may have heard of the Pomodoro Technique. This is a tool for time management that was developed by Francesco Cirillo in the 1980s. Pomodoro means tomato in Italian, and it refers to a tomato-shaped kitchen timer that Cirillo used when he was a university student. Here's the idea. You set a timer for 25 minutes and work until the timer goes off. No distractions, no sidetracks, no stopping to get coffee or pet the cat or whatever. Once the time is up, you take a five-minute break, and then you do it again. One 25-minute work period plus one five-minute break equals one Pomodoro. You can use the Pomodoro technique for any sort of task that requires careful, focused attention. For the Magic Spreadsheet, you can now enter a number of Pomodoros that you've completed while working on tasks for your writing business. Just like your word count, the number of Pomodoros you have to complete to keep your consistency score increases as you go up in level. This month, I started using this technique to give myself credit for the time I spent working on the podcast, and I hope that by using the Pomodoro technique, I'll be able to work faster and get more efficient with my audio production. Once I get back the comments from my beta readers, I'll be using the technique on editing The Lost in the Least as I get it ready for publication. Over on the Patreon feed, I'm happy to announce that I'm back to producing my Behind the Episode podcast. This is an unscripted audio commentary that I record for each story that airs on the Raven and the Writing Desk. This week I released the commentaries for parts 1 and 2 of Huntress, and I've already recorded episodes for House Call, The Sentinel, and The Muse, which will start being released next week. This special podcast is available to all current patrons of the show, and it includes behind-the-scenes details that I've never shared anywhere else. To find it, go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Once you've made a pledge, you'll see a special audio RSS link on the front page, which is unique to you. You can plug in that link to the podcatcher software of your choice, 
and you'll receive those bonus episodes automatically when I release them, just like a regular podcast. Again, that's at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. And now, the feedback. Paul wrote in with this message. Hello, Chris. My name is Paul, and I've been listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk since it was the Metamore City podcast. I've listened to every episode, save the last three or four, as I was away on vacation. Gotta catch up. And I have loved every sci-fi, fantasy, and demonology-riddled minute of it. I do miss the full cast, but if it means giving up the rate at which the work comes out, I'm not complaining. The reason I'm writing to you for the first time, after quietly listening for so long, is that I just saw the trailer for the new Netflix movie, Bright. I know it obviously has some differences, but I immediately saw Kate playing the lead, and wanted this so bad. It is a movie with orcs, elves, magic, and possibly vampires, but it also has beat cops and run-down neighborhoods. This is the closest thing I can think of to your world, and I was drawing some big parallels. So my question is this, are you excited by this? Or are you miffed by this being a large portion of your world now being sort of pushed to video? Hi, Paul. I too saw the trailer for Bright, and I've got to admit, I am super excited for this movie. I love the fact that Netflix is taking a chance on a real urban fantasy, and I can't wait to see how they blend together the realistic and fantasy elements of the story. Sure, there are similarities to Metamore City, but there were similarities between Metamore and Shadowrun, too, and that doesn't mean I was stealing Shadowrun's ideas. There's nothing new under the sun. What matters isn't the idea, it's what you do with it. Personally, I hope Bright is an excellent film and a huge success, and that it encourages people to make more movies and shows like this in the future. Who knows, maybe it will generate interest in Metamore City. Thanks for writing in, it was great to hear from you. This isn't feedback, but it is an exciting bit of news about the podcast. This week, the finalists were announced for the 2017 Parsec Awards, which are given out every year to the producers of outstanding podcasts in the area of speculative fiction. My novel, Things Unseen, made the finals for the best speculative fiction story, small cast, long form. If you want to see who else made it in, you can see the list of finalists at parsecawards.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. The winners will be announced through a live streaming online ceremony in November. When the exact date is announced, I'll let you know. Big thanks to the Parsec Awards Committee for this recognition. There is some tough competition this year, and it's an honor just to make it to the finals. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show, take a minute and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out.
The contents of this podcast are copyright 2004 and 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org. <laughs>